Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Simon Burton from Numero. I'm Matthew Liebman from Movio. Hey, Simon, how are all your CinemaCon plans coming along? Uh, going well, Matthew. Still can't believe that uh, we're going to let a bunch of New Zealanders in. Uh, it was quite nice the last couple of years, not having uh, you and your people coming up here. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I just live here. I'm not one of the people. I'm Australian. <laughs> I'm one of you people. Hey, uh, rumour has it you're making your big stage debut before the Universal presentation. Is that true? You could call it that. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to uh, have received the baton this year on behalf of Vista Group and the the sponsorship uh, award that we're that we're giving out uh, prior to the Universal Pictures presentation on Wednesday afternoon. So all set for that. Only be up there for a couple of minutes, though, Matt. It's not not a huge deal, mate. I don't know. Simon Burton in front of the screens for once. <laughs> oh, very good. Hey, uh, why don't we look at the the Easter weekend box office? Because there are a few different releases uh, in the US and abroad, and some solid numbers coming through. Yeah, why don't we kick off with Fantastic Beasts: Secrets of Dumbledore, which released domestically this weekend, taking out the, the number one position in the North American market with a box office gross of forty two point two million dollars. Um, it also added an additional. $71 million internationally and was ranked number one in 52 markets internationally. So good result there for the guys from Warner Brothers. Um, just despite it being slightly behind the previous two Fantastic Beast films, but the uh, but the global total now is just short of $200 million. It'll be interesting to see if there's a fourth instalment. Um, I went and saw it with the family over the weekend and it, really the ending could go either way. You could open it up for part four and part five, which was originally announced, mm -hmm. or depending on how the grosses all plan out, Warner's has kind of tied it up with a bow if they want to as well. Yeah. One film franchise that will certainly get another uh, addition is Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 grossed another $25 million from 54 markets this past weekend. I actually went to see it myself on Saturday. I took my my daughter along um and we uh, had a great time the jim carrey he's just he's a classic i love that guy uh, i'm gonna have to introduce my kids to a bit of ace ventura and the mask and a few of his other classics uh i'm not sure how they've held up over time I'm sure they're classics dumb and dumber that's the one yep dumb and dumb the other name for our podcast <laughs> um so good result there internationally for Sonic the Hedgehog 2, continuing, as I said, 25 million from 54 markets this, this past weekend. Uh, it's now crossed the $100 million mark at the international box office, standing at $112 million through Sunday. Um, had a 59% drop in the domestic market, taking uh, out second spot with $29.3 million. Uh, moving on to a couple of other openers in North America. Um, we had Father Stu from Sony, ranked number five, taking $5.4 million. And another Bollywood hit, KGF Chapter 2, stands for Kolar Goldfields. Um, I didn't catch Chapter 1 of, of, of KGF, but uh, given the box office results, yeah, I might, I might get my Bollywood on actually soon and go out and catch one of these films. Ranked in number nine, taking in $2.8 million dollars. Um, looking at some of the screen averages there, it was pretty strong, around a $5,500 screen average for that, that Bollywood title. 
Uh, but why don't we just jump back to Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, uh, as we shared number one ranked film in North America, $42.2 million this past weekend. Uh, have you got some insights on the audience, Matthew? Yeah. Um, one of the things I did find interesting looking at, you know, the creative uh, for this title is how they're reducing Fantastic Beasts. You know, they kind of shouted Fantastic Beasts in the first one. They spoke in a normal voice for the second. And Fantastic Beasts is small font in the top corner behind Secrets of Dumbledore here. Uh, so it seems they're leaning more into Harry Potter canon than introducing new characters. But when we look at the most similar audiences based on opening weekend, we can see the other two Fantastic Beasts in there, which is no surprise. Morbius, Uncharted, Eternals, Star Wars Chapter 9 and The Batman. Interestingly, the third most similar title at this point is Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So we're seeing a large overlap in Wizarding Worlds, the Marvel version and uh, J.K. Rowling's, and they're already coming out in solid numbers for Doctor Strange. What I've done in terms of benchmark is look at Secrets of Dumbledore to the first two Fantastic Beast performance over their respective opening weekends. From a frequency perspective, we're seeing that Dumbledore had very strong performance amongst infrequents, uh, those people who come less than four times at, um, annually. So the infrequents were 36% for Dumbledore, 22% overall. And this came at the expense of the, um, of the frequent and very frequent category. So those who come uh, 12 times or more. So Dumbledore um, at the frequent end of the spectrum was only 27%, whereas for the other two, it was at 42%. When we look at age and gender, we might see where some of the, the box office drifted away. Dumbledore has attracted fewer males than the prior installments. It was 50% versus 55% overall. And the dominant age range is 25 to 34 years old. And that was the same for the prior two installments, but it's become even more pronounced for Dumbledore. One in four people fell into that category. Uh, we did see some gains in the 35 to 64. It was 44% for Dumbledore, 38 for the other two, 38% that is. And those aged 24 and under fell by 10 percentage points. They were 23% for Dumbledore versus about 33% before. So what this all sort of means is Dumbledore seems to be retaining the hardcore Potter fans, those who are aging along with the original books and into this series, and potentially not attracting a new younger audience in particular. And that's almost certainly compounded by the fact that this is the third installment. And no doubt some moviegoers are thinking it's hard to catch up by jumping in at part three if they've not seen parts one and two beforehand. That was something I noticed back when I was in exhibition with the Harry Potter films. It was really hard in particular to get group and corporate sales to come to part six of Harry Potter. You know, the host didn't want to bring a lot of people along who had no idea what was going on. I assume we're seeing a little bit of that with uh, the Fantastic Beast series now. Mm. Very interesting. Moving on to Father Stu, uh, $5.4 million, ranked number five at the domestic box office this past weekend for Father Stu. Why don't you give us the, the actual audience makeup? In terms of opening weekend similar audiences, we are seeing a lot of religious and religious adjacent titles. So we've got Unplanned, Paul Apostle of Christ, Underdog, I Can Only Imagine, Faustina, Love and Mercy. What we often see is an overlap between audiences who see Christian-oriented titles and war movies. And that's come out here with Dog being one of the top titles as well. Um, Clint Eastwood's is always a big favorite here. The Mule has hit the top eight. And the final title is The Lost City because what's a forgiveness without needing something to be forgiven for? And watching Brad Pitt and Channing Tatum might be something 
that people are seeking a bit of absolution from with Father Stu. What we're seeing is Father Stu's audience is less frequent than the average opening weekend audience, 34% um, versus 27%. So it's pulling a, a slightly different audience in. Very strong outperformance in groups that came in pairs. So that was 59% bought two tickets versus 48% overall. And that was at the expense of larger groups. From an age and gender perspective, very strong female outperformance. It was 54% versus 43% for what we typically see for an opening weekend audience. 71% were aged 55 plus, and that compares to 21% for the average weekend audience. So 50 percentage points higher in the 55 plus category. Um, taking a subslice of that and looking at the 65 plus, that came in at 44% versus 10% overall. So this kind of suggests that the demo is amongst those who've been less comfortable coming to cinemas. And if that older group was willing to come in bigger numbers, maybe the grosses would have been a little higher. Um, I know this is domestic US centric, but what we are also seeing is significant outperformance amongst Caucasians in rural areas. That's brilliant stuff. Why don't we move on to this week's interview? Thanks, Simon. Of course, this week's interview is part two of my discussion with Sam Clements, who's the head of marketing and membership at Picture House Cinemas in the UK. Now, curation um, is a big focus for you at, at Picture House and among various events and series and festivals is what's called the Harbour Highlights. And it's described as a series of cult and classic favourites handpicked by the staff at the theatre. Uh, Harbour Lights being one of your, your locations, of course. What gave you the confidence to hand the programming reins over to the theatre team in this way? Uh, because a lot of chains wouldn't even think about that as an option. You've done you've done your research. That's a deep cut. Uh, I love it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Harbour Lights. I mean, it's, it comes back to the fact that film fans work in our cinemas. You know, we have a central programming team who who work with the distributors, navigate our way through new releases, do some of our programming seasons, and 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 all of that sort of good stuff. And and that's what we do nationally uh, and roll out. But also every cinema programmer our bookers are in constant dialogue with the team at their cinema and being receptive to ideas it goes back to that community ethos so at harbor lights we've got a really enthusiastic team of people um some quite long-serving members of staff who i've known since when i was a student going there uh, as a customer um and and they just love films and and i think they they saw actually in that location there isn't really anyone doing old movie screenings the, the competition are all very new release focused and, and very multiplex and Harbour Lights is kind of the outlier there. There isn't a, there isn't a smaller, even more independent cinema uh, to compete with. Uh, so, so if I think if, if rep cinema wants to thrive in Southampton, it does need to go through Harbour Lights. Um, and it's only a two screen cinema. So actually giving the program over to the staff uh, is, is quite a big commitment. You know, you, <laughs> that could be 50% of shows of the latest, you know, Batman or whatever you lose because you decided that actually Stephen at Harbour Lights would like to show the thing. But we want Stephen at Harbour Lights to show the thing. Um, it, it, I think it's good for not just like, you know, good for, for, for visibility. It's great internally. It's good for staff um, to, to be able to do that uh, there. And yeah, it's a, it's a great partnership with the team. It's been running for such a long time because it's a success. Those shows often sell out because the team are all driving and invested and and, and, and pushing uh, to sell tickets and, and sort of go above and beyond with the marketing. Because they're often old films, there's no distributor materials. So it has to be made in-house. And we've got a really great team at Harbour Lights who 
will do these incredible, you know, hand-drawn uh, chalkboards to promote the latest screening. And it's kind of like when you go to a restaurant and they've got the daily specials. Um, the special this week is Stephen screening of the thing, and and there'll be some amazing illustration, which will be very Instagram friendly, uh, and uh, and yeah, it's sort of spider webs from there really. But uh, but yeah, we do that at a couple of cinemas, but not everywhere because somewhere in some places there isn't you know someone to to run taking on marketing <laughs> a standalone screening is quite a lot of work. So so it's sort of like you know it's not something we we force upon people, um, you know, like when you go to those chain restaurants that sometimes try to look really independent by having like a name tag and, you know, your favorite something of something uh, on it, you know, maybe, maybe Stephen doesn't want to tell me that that's his favorite film or his favorite flavor of ice cream. Um, but at Harbour Lights, the, you know, the, the staff is so enthusiastic. They were like, yes, this is what we want to do. Um, and long may it continue. Yeah, yeah. I reckon I could be friends with Stephen by this time. <laughs> Stephen is a wonderful, wonderful person, I have to say. He's a, <laughs> a real member of staff who um, who does does largely curate this and runs the film quiz. Uh, because we've got these food and drink areas, film quizzes are, and we're cinemas, <laughs> film quizzes are so popular. Our customers like a bit of trivia. And uh, yeah, Stephen's a great quiz master too. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, look, they say in our industry never to work with kids or animals, uh, yet you offer a whole range of kids programs, uh, great names like The Big Scream and Toddler Time and Kids Club. But I saw you've also held dog friendly screenings. So I have two questions for you. What are better behaved, children or dogs? And has there been pushback from the cat constituency, especially Ellie, your own cat, who I got to meet just before we started recording? <laughs> um... I, th mm. I don't know if it's fair to say dogs are better behaved than children, but they do make less mess in the cinema. <laughs> um, and, you know, the stakes are higher, though. I think, you know, for every child and pretty much every child would leave a bit of popcorn or whatever they're eating uh, behind um, when, when we leave, they leave the screen. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to have to clean up a bit of popcorn, you know, sort of comes with the job. But if a dog makes a mess in the screen, then 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 it's a it's a disaster. <laughs> so we would <laughs> we would prefer the dogs be well behaved. Um, I think there's been a few minor accidents from the dogs, which have uh, thankfully been uh, in the in the uh, the hard surfaced foyer areas, which are much easier to mop up um, rather than the nice nicely carpeted cinema screens. Um, there is a bit of health and safety that goes into doing these, though. We do have to do a deep clean um, for anyone with allergies coming to use the theater for the next screening. So. The, the reset time between a dog friendly screening and and something for children or for for you know humans um is uh, is a bit longer so we don't do them very often we usually do them once a month but yeah you can bring your dog to the cinema it is uh i, I we were definitely the first um, exhibitor in the world to do this i don't know if more people have followed suit because it did get a bit of press attention but um if anyone's listening who has a cinema and you know likes uh likes dogs um then then i yeah i'd recommend it as a as a, as a nice thing to do, maybe as a, you know, early in the morning. So you've got time before your main program or last thing at night. So uh, you can have overnight to, to kind of clean up. But, um, but yeah, we have to, we have to take in a, a few sort of extra health and safety requirements. Uh, the dog has to be seated on a blanket, um, which, uh, which then gets returned and laundered uh, for us. Uh, we don't want the dogs again, just to help with um, customers using the cinema uh, for the next screening. Uh, there but um but largely the feedback is when the, the film starts the dogs fall asleep <laughs> <laughs> just like my dad uh, so uh so it doesn't matter even if we decided to show something controversial like cats uh, i don't think um you know a riot would break out i think i think the dogs would just have a nice snooze um it has been what's really nice is the feedback from customers a lot of people who come to the dog friendly shows 
don't come to the cinema any other time often they you know the dog is a full-time commitment and a lot of customers live on their own or or you know don't, don't have someone to look after the dog uh, should they go out for an extended uh, period of time so so we have seen people returning to the cinema for the first time um, since becoming dog owners uh, at those screenings um the, the second nice aspect is it's a community you know you, you meet other dog owners you've instantly got something in common and we've we've seen all of the dogs and their owners afterwards go to the cafe or the bar and have a chat and 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 sort of you know friendships have, have formed so so uh, yeah we're really pleased uh, with those dog friendly uh, shows um um, it's a similar ethos to what we did with the baby screenings, uh, what we call Big Scream. Um, you know, it's uh, it's put, we put those screenings on for a specific audience. Not everybody is going to want to watch a film with a potentially screaming baby uh, in. So you know, come in the morning first thing. This is your club. You know, and if you want to have a scream, that's fine. If there's tears, no worries about it. Uh, you know, if you need to leave halfway through to go to the bathroom and change your diaper also fine um so so yeah so we we you know we and we do that throughout our program you know for, for various you know sort of needs or groups um you know we, we love putting that that stuff on and i don't know again we're not the only exhibitor who do a lot of those screenings but often we were the first um big scream uh reportedly um we are the first according to legend or i've heard other exhibitors saying they were the first um but we've been doing it for definitely for like 20 years or so uh, so we've been doing it for a really long time the, the parent and baby screenings um and you know recently we've we've branched out into toddler screenings showing shorter content uh, like peppa pig uh working with the rights holders to to do a 30 minute program of a couple of episodes of something uh and it's kind of like you know it was a child could come as a baby to a screening. Yeah, I think depending on who you talk to, the child probably doesn't really take much attention to it and they'll sleep through some of it. But to actually like watch the content and enjoy it, a 30 minute program for a toddler is is probably the right amount of time. And that's, you know, the first time you're leaving your living room or leaving your iPad and you're going to somewhere else to sit on a strange chair with other people and watch this thing. And and, and kids have a good time. And then we, you know, we just sort of nurtured that up through the age ranges. We have Kids Club, which is showing children's films on a Saturday morning, uh, often for discounted pricing. And, you know, we'll, we'll sort of go up to a, we have an under 25s club <laughs> um, where you get discounted tickets if you're age 16 to 25. We have a student membership, you know, and, uh, 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 you know, on and on and on we go until you get to our retired uh, Silver Screen Club. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Cradle to the Grave. Uh, but I love the idea of um, introducing kids to the cinema. I've done that with my kids when they were a toddler age and it's our weekend activity. And I think if we're going to continue to, to get vibrant audiences, what you're doing is spot on. I think it's really important, you know, it's, and also it's, um, it's not, you know, it's really great to get children in early, but also when people become parents, it's great that they can carry on going to the movies. And, and so many of my friends who have been on maternity leave have had a young child they love the parent and baby screenings for a lot of people you know it became a weekly appointment uh, and i used to work at one of our cinemas my first job was was behind the town counter uh, in our brixton cinema the ritzy and i i worked the shift where we had parent and baby screenings i i saw the the debris and the fallouts every friday morning but i also helped you know put the prams away the push chairs we would store those whilst the film is on um yeah we would serve insane amounts of coffees uh to the parents of young children 
coming in. It would mostly be mums, but we would notice when there was a James Bond or a, or a big action movie, then a lot of dads would take the baby uh, to the screenings. <laughs> uh, but but I would see the same faces every Friday, you know. And you'd you'd start to if you don't know people by name, you would start to recognize people and like, oh, you were here last week. What did you think of that movie? Uh, and it was it was a really nice shift to work. Uh, you know, although sometimes you would you would maybe find a used nappy in the screen. Um. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I saw on your website you're a couple of months away from the start of your 2022 Picture House Outdoors program, uh, which is a concept described as bringing the Picture House experience to a variety of outdoor venues across England. But as we've spent much of the conversation talking about, a lot of the Picture House experience to me seems baked into those 26 neighbourhood cinemas with the food offerings and the lounges and, and so on. So how do you kind of unshackle that and take it to altogether new places and keep it genuinely Picture House? That's a good question. Um, it's, it's it's really the people. I think the, the constant then is um, the because the, those outdoor events are in the same town as uh, as our as our bricks and mortar venue. And and I think there is a novelty to to seeing, you know, your favorite cinema manager uh, outdoors, you know, not not behind the counter, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe because it's Britain. So it'll be cold and probably raining, um, you know, in a, in a raincoat holding an umbrella um, whilst trying to put on a film screening. I think it's sort of, you know, we, we take the essence. Um, even though the building, you know, stays stays where it is when we do that. Also, programming. We um, outdoor screenings. We usually show classic movies, but you know, we'll we'll show picture house classic movies, and and it'll be a it'll, it should feel like it's the same DNA as what people might enjoy at an indoor location. Uh, there, I think we often outdoor cinemas became really popular over here for the last few years, and picture house were kind of late to joining the party. Um, it's often run by people who run music festivals or specialize in outdoor events, but there aren't many cinemas who specialize in being cinemas uh, doing those screenings. So we thought we did have something to, to offer. And and we just thought, you know, we, we know we have an audience in, say, Norwich uh, in, the, in the east of England. So we'll we'll do an outdoor screening in Norwich and we'll, we'll bring our customers from our indoor venue uh, to the outdoors. And, and it's, it's become a good thing. It's become quite busy. Typically, uh, the summer here is our worst season uh, for movie going. The film releases aren't as strong, and you know the great British public would much prefer being outdoors. Um, you know, for the few months of sunshine we do get. So, so um, it's kind of like I think it's extra visits for people who maybe wouldn't normally visit us over that period as well. Like they're not so fussed by the summer movies, but I was showing Top Gun in a, you know, in in quite a, usually quite an interesting venue, um, you know, or, or sort of a quirky local venue. Um, and, uh, and it's kind of that idea, you know, it's a unique event. We only do it a few times a year. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it does, it does, it, it's, it's a challenge <laughs> to set those things up and we can't bring our full range of food and drinks. Like we're known, I think for having quite a, a good range of, of, uh, you know, especially like alcoholic drinks and the grown up drinks, uh, in, in our cinemas. Um, there's only so much you can do with, you know, a, a bottle of Pepsi, but, uh, but we always stock, you know, local beers. Uh, we have a really broad wine list. Um, we do, you know, speciality coffee, uh, our beans are roasted just for picture house. In fact, you know, we've sort of put our stamp on our sort of more grown up drinks and, uh, and yeah, bringing all that outside is a logistical challenge. 
so we often do a limited range. You know, we think of what's in cans and bottles. Obviously, can't do draft, can't bring a beer seller with us. Uh, but yeah, we just sort of take try and take the best of <laughs> um, uh, out with us when we do those outdoor screenings. Uh, and you know, we have that joy of what uh, what do we do when it rains? Inevitably, halfway through the Greater Showman. Um, so you really do have to be prepared <laughs> uh, for those screenings. We've talked a lot about exhibition, but one of the other things that Picturehouse is involved in is distribution, and you've had a distribution arm for about 12 years now. What's its particular focus or point of difference, and how do you create synergies between the theatres and, um, and the members as well? Uh, and how do you make the best and most obvious place to watch these films at Picture House in one of your theatres because you distribute broadly. Um, is there some secret source of pairing the title and the venue um, when you distribute? Yeah, that, that's a good that's a good point. So yeah, it's often um, because distributors, unless you're Walt Disney, you don't you distributors aren't often known to the public. So like Picture House having a distribution arm is is often you know definitely known more B two B rather than B two C in that respect. Um, but I think for the, for our members who are probably most exposed to the marketing, um, they do get this sort of sense of Picture House picking up films and releasing them, and 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 for those people, it's about the quality. You know, we we don't screen every film released because we don't have the space primarily, but also because we don't want to. Um, yeah, some films are not good <laughs> or not right for our customers, and and when a lot of our venues are only two or three screen venues, we really have to choose what is available. Um, and what's right for the audience. So the programming team especially have this deep knowledge of what works, what doesn't work, and not only what works generally, but what works in that particular location. Um, you know, and, and we often have the, the struggle telling distributors, like, you really don't want to play this film in that venue. Like, it won't work. And this is the list of reasons why. Um, often a lot of distributors want the biggest footprint possible, but sometimes it's not right. But that that knowledge went into the into the distribution arm when we set it up. And and it really came out of our programming team going to film festivals, seeing amazing films, and then being disappointed when they wouldn't get a UK distributor. And I, again, you know, like a lot of these things, a question was asked, could we pick up a film and, and could we do this? And 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 you know, <laughs> we could because we're we're still here doing it. But but um it it was a bit of a weird it was a weird business pivot, I suppose, to to then get involved in all of the 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 work that goes into buying a film, all of the paperwork, all of the legal work with buying rights to a piece of content, uh, you know, and 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 all of the sign offs that go into it, and all of that. So it it wasn't sort of a challenge taken lightly. And um, again, you know, we like to make things difficult for ourselves. Um, but where it's paid off, where films that would not normally get a UK release have had a UK release, and we've got to bring them to an audience. And the picture house audience, I guess, are the ones we know the best. So they're often the yardstick by which we measure uh, these things. You know, could this French movie with nobody, nobody, anyone's heard of in this country uh, work here? It's really charming. It's uplifting. It would get good reviews from critics. Um, let's give it a go. And 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 it's it's often that stuff. So we're not looking to buy big starry films. Occasionally there is a, a big celebrity name in a movie, but we're really looking for those films that would fly under the radar of the bigger distributors um, but we see potential in, and uh, you know, it, it, maybe we're not going to go for a, you know a, a box office record with it, but it'll be something that will fill our screens and, and hopefully similar venues. So we do distribute to other exhibitors uh, there, and and, and it's kind of nice, you know, we get to learn from our, our friends, other exhibitors, uh, in that respect, and it's a good way for us to be 
uh, you know, to talk to people we wouldn't normally talk to um, and share expertise across the business. So it's been quite a good way, I think, to, to for, for the company to grow just by by talking to other exhibitors through our film slate um, there. But yeah, I think we I think we it's 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 sort of, you know, it's <laughs> it's it, it's been going for a long time and, and we're not we're not uh, releasing you know films every month. But what we do release, we really believe in. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a it's been a journey, <laughs> uh, but a fun one. I think I think in terms of how our films perform at Picture House, you know, we we don't go all out, and maybe we should, you know, <laughs> have someone pr- present the film from Picture House or a video ahead of the movie that you know this was purchased by Picture House and we are bringing it to you. Uh, we don't quite do that, but we do, you know, we we do expose the audiences in our cinemas to a lot of extra marketing or additional content. Um, around the films you know or there's all the usual stuff posters and trailers and things but we'll always try and get filmmaker q a's in our venues if possible um or actor q a's or, or some additional element like that uh, and we'll, i guess we'll have a longer lead time you know first look at the poster for this film goes straight to our members um recently we uh we we asked for um a letter from a director that we were working with and, and she wrote this really heartfelt sort of letter about what went into making the film and it was with the members in mind and because we were distributing the film we had access to that talent to say actually you know, would you through Movio would you like to write something to our customers uh, and and I've, I've not really seen people do that before and I think we'd like to do more of it it's not going to change the fortune of of a film particularly but it, it gives the reader a bit more context as to what went into making the film the film that we were releasing um, was shot during COVID so um, it was a really challenging shoot and we wanted that to come across and you know no, even if you're the best copywriter in the world it's not the same as the film director actually writing to to your audience um, so that was a nice sort of synergy of our cinema marketing and the distribution working together to do something special and like more of a nice to have, but something that we believed in doing. No, terrific, terrific sentiment there. Now we talked about the podcast you do for Picture House at the top of the pod today, um, the love of cinema, um, but it's not the only one you record. You have another one called the 90 minutes or less film fest. I'd love to hear a bit more about it, but I'd also really like your views on when you think the runtime of movies is excessive these days, or is it simply a matter of moviegoers getting more goodness for their box office dollar? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I love podcasts and I, I love talking to you, Matthew, because you, you clearly love podcasts too. Uh, so it's kind of nice. It's always nice to meet a fellow fan of the, the form. Um, yeah, I mean, the love of cinema is definitely with my work hat on, and it's bringing a bit of my personality to to the company uh, and, and having a bit of influence there. But we are driven by, and I've noticed because I've been doing that podcast for a little while. I'm, I'm talking about whatever distributors have decided to release that Friday, and some films are great, and sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I want to watch that, or I don't know if I want to talk about it, or maybe I don't have anything nice to say or constructive to say about it. Um, <clears throat> so it was, it was sort of like. Like I, uh, but I, you know, I, I still love making the show. But with ninety minutes or less, um, sort of a, a personal project <laughs> uh, spinoff, um, that was born out of you know my my you know what would I what do I love talking about? And it came up more and more on the love of cinema. It was like if a film had a shorter runtime, I <laughs> I would feel obliged to to shout it out. And when you're watching films day in day out, you know you do start to appreciate the ones that give you a bit more free time. Uh, there, so so I, I don't think ninety minutes or less would have existed without the, the love of cinema or working in a cinema company as well. You often have these conversations which are like, oh, the film, the new Batman is three hours long. That gives us one good evening show. You know, it, it often feels like it's maybe a bad um, 
business decision for studios to make these longer films, but often those longer films actually are what what makes more money at the box office. So th- th- there's clearly a sort of a, an alchemy there um, th- that works. But um, but it makes our our job harder as an exhibitor trying to schedule in you know four shows a day of the Batman when it is so long, and you have to add for ads and trailers and and breaks and and stuff in between. Um, and I just sort of thought, what would it would be so nice if every film was 90 minutes long, because the programming would be great. You would do it in these really definite chunks. You could start at, say, like mid two hour turnaround and then the show films. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, the show finishes at one thirty. You've got 30 minutes next one at two o'clock and you could just do that until closing time. Um, so it yeah came out of a bit of a fantasy. You know, what if uh, through through Love of Cinema and uh, and then I thought, well, actually, it doesn't have to be a fantasy. Um, it could be a you know live as a, as a as a podcast, which is about the conversations we have around these shorter films, and uh, and yeah, I, I wondered if everybody, anyone, <laughs> shared the uh, that same attitude to shorter movies. And everybody I spoke to in the office, first of all, like yeah, no, we we love under ninety minute films for all of the reasons mentioned before, and and, and many many more. And it was clear there was sort of a yeah, I think people like the novelty of an under ninety minute uh, film in that respect. Um, but the podcast is is me talking to a guest, and I, I I was like, well, I know I like these, but do other people do like these? And uh, and yeah, we sort of went out to a few friends first of all to ask if they'd like to pick a their favorite under ninety minute film. And I think for a film fan, having an arbitrary restriction <laughs> placed on yourself, you know, your favorite film with Robert Redford, uh, your favorite film from the nineties, uh, your favorite movie made by a woman, or you know, like if if you add an extra. Um, qualifying factor to that it makes the conversation a bit more interesting because I think if you said what's your favorite film so many people would say the canonical you know greatest films of all time sort of movies favorite under 90 minute film oh I don't have an answer for you off the top of my head I'll have to go and think about it and and I thought that element actually would make for a good podcast so you know we, we over the years we've we've managed to reach out to filmmakers directors and all sorts of people um, who have that that you know, the, the the shared passion is that the uh, they love the idea of an under ninety minute film, but by and large everybody has picked a different movie because you know they they thought about the challenge in different ways. Often people go to their childhood films. Disney films are pretty much almost always under ninety minutes long. Um, some people have gone even earlier, you know, um, back to before they were born uh, to pick a Charlie Chaplin film or a Buster Keaton film because uh, those early silent films were often. Uh, under 90 minutes but not always that's that and uh, it's interesting like my misconception was you know films were always short but that's so not true in the 20s there were so many four-hour movies <laughs> i didn't realize no it's wild isn't it like a four-hour-long silent movie the piano's fingers must have been cramping yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's such a different way of exhibi- exhibiting stuff but i just love having that conversation with people and, and when i do the love of cinema podcast i love interviewing filmmakers but often you know at those interviews you you have five or ten minutes and you can only talk about the new release i want to know what did they what did they just watch at the cinema what's their favorite flavor of ice cream and with 90 minutes or less the concept is we're putting on a fictional film festival i do actually get to ask those questions too at your fantasy screening of something like Toy Story, say, which is, you know, about 18 minutes long, what what would you like to serve with Toy Story? Uh, where should we show the film? If you've got a favorite movie theater, you know, we could hire if we were to put this on. Um, who would you like to invite to talk about the film? Would you like to do any activities in the foyer? You know, and, and we we get to have those extra sort of conversations about exhibition that I don't normally get to have. So, yeah, it's a bit of a, bit of a fantasy uh, sort of project. Yeah, absolutely. 
Hey, Sam, I've so enjoyed talking to you. I can keep going for ages. I, I take some solace that I can keep hearing your voice on your multiple podcasts, The Love of Cinema, 90 Minutes or Less and others. Thank you for joining me today. And um, I hope we get a chance to do it again at some time. No, absolutely. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. It's been so nice to talk to you. And, uh, and yeah, let's talk again in future. So why don't we now take a look at the pre-sales uh, for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Um, currently they're ahead of the Batman, 18 days out from release in North America, but not hugely surprising behind Spider-Man No Way Home. But either way, it's looking like a, an extremely large box office take for Doctor Strange. Yes, I mean, and I had a quick look at the audience and there's some interesting things popping out already. Um, as always, the disclaimer is that this is a pre-release audience. It will almost certainly be different on day one and it'll change between now and then. When you look at the pre-release uh, similar titles to date, it is a who's who of comic book movies. You've got the Eternals, the last two Spider-Man titles, uh, the final two Avengers, Shang-Chi, the Batman and Morbius. When I compare Multiverse of Madness to the first Doctor Strange, um, what we're seeing is far more occasional moviegoers, those who come four to 10 times a year. So 51% for Multiverse versus 38% for Doctor Strange. It's also outperforming amongst infrequents at 25% versus 18%. So hopefully this will drive people back in theatres who we haven't seen uh, since the pandemic, or at least not that frequently since the, the doors reopened in our industry. We're seeing larger group sizes for the latest instalment. So 43% are coming in groups of three or more compared to 35% for the first Doctor Strange. So that's positive also. And when you look at age and gender, it's skewing more female and younger than the first instalment. 38% uh, of pre-sales to date are female. It was only 25% for Doctor Strange. And 41% are aged under 25 years versus 33% for the first instalment. So maybe that's a reflection of the casting. You've got um, Elizabeth Olsen back as Wanda Maximoff, Scarlet Witch, appeals more to a, a younger female crowd, uh, at least by the pop collection my daughter has on her bookshelf. And they're introducing a younger female hero, America Chavez. So that might also play. One of the other aspects that we do see is horror audiences often skew younger. And there has been talk that this is Marvel's first horror movie. So maybe we're seeing a little bit of self-selection amongst that audience. And of course, the, the character of America Chavez uh, may also be responsible for a more diverse audience in North America, where we're seeing 24% amongst Latinos versus 18% for the first installment. So hopefully the story is good, Simon, but at least in terms of the casting and the way they're positioning the tone, it is opening up this multiverse than the first Doctor Strange. Yeah, I look forward to seeing how that evolves in the in the next couple of weeks and, and seeing how those pre-sales build as well. Looking forward to, to next week, is there any truth to the rumour that we'll be coming live from the, the Vista cocktail party? I think so. We'll wander around with microphones. I think a little karaoke would be in order. Well, I was going to think people would come to us, Matthew. We could just sit in the corner. And after you've been in front of the screen, who wouldn't want to come and sit next to you in the corner of a nightclub? <laughs> but it will be the first in person in, what, 18 months of us doing this, uh, the first time you and I've recorded in person. So that'll be nice. That's right. We'll be able to see if any of our listeners are able to, to pick the difference. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. No. <laughs> Terrific. So we'll bring all the latest from CinemaCon. Uh, we'll touch on next week's new releases. I know you were suggesting it might be time for us to do a check-in on the audience for everything, everywhere, all at once, which has been evolving as A24 has executed a really successful platform strategy there. 
So until next week, until CinemaCon, where we hope to see a lot of listeners in person for the first time, stay safe and thank you for joining us behind the screens. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world-leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Scenes podcast is produced by Grace Furness, edited by Patrick Hanna, with additional support from Ryan Preventure, Georgia Culverwell and Christine Rizzolo.